Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, and all that belong to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray. So this is Thanksgiving week, and uh, it's a pretty appropriate time to come to the end of the book of Ruth, I think. Um, As we see the people of Bethlehem rejoicing here in Thanksgiving for Yahweh's provision of a son for Naomi. And as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking about the idea of rejoicing. And sometimes it's not easy to rejoice, but thinking about the idea of rejoicing, I thought about our trip back to Washington State where we live, which is a 22-hour drive. And normally we do it in about two days. And so during that 22 hours of driving, the kids don't really feel like rejoicing too often. Um, But we have little breaks where we stretch and we rejoice in those, where we eat and we really rejoice in those. And then also we stop the first night somewhere and we especially rejoice to get out of the car 
and to rest in a bed and not have to drive anymore for a while anyway. But behind these small rejoicings lies a greater rejoicing, and it's, it's that rejoicing that we have when we get home. We've left our family back home. We left our friends back home. Our normal, everyday life is back home. And while we enjoy it here, our kids are looking forward to seeing their friends and their family. And so beyond this dreariness of the car ride lies this hope of seeing their family once again, being in their own bed once again. And so they can rejoice even though they go through this uh, kind of a pain of driving for 22 hours. And as I thought about Naomi and rejoicing and... Um, kind of how we face trials. I saw that there are at least two ways of improperly dealing with the pain, the misery, the death, the suffering, um, the hunger, all the miseries of life that come from living in this cursed earth. On the one hand, we can think God is against us. Naomi thought God was against her. We can wonder, what what did we do to deserve such treatment? Uh, We think he doesn't love us. We might even think he hates us. It might be like putting the kids in the car and not telling them they're going anywhere. The parents are just torturing them. Um, Another way, though, that we can think about God and improperly think about him is to ignore him completely. And I think this is pretty common. Um, In my life, this is what happens. Uh, We seek out others for comfort or things for comfort, or we try to keep a stiff upper lip and do it ourselves, uh, or we seek satisfaction in those things that don't last, whatever they are, money or food or whatever it is. And I thought about that too, and it's kind of like the books or movies or uh, music we give to the kids in the car to distract them. And while it distracts them, it also distracts them from thinking about that rejoicing they'll have when they get home. Um, but that's fine with us because. They don't whine when we do it. But I was thinking about that and how we often get distracted by the things of life. We don't look to our destination. Both of these mindsets do distract us from the redemption God has worked for us in Christ. Uh, We forget he has freely bestowed himself upon us in Christ, his son. He's given redemption to sinners who only deserve wrath. As much as we think we are good, We are not good. Uh, We do deserve punishment forever. And we don't deserve any relief from this punishment because of our sin. And when we improperly think of our state of sin and misery, we don't see the greatness of the rejoicing we should have in the redemption provided to us in Christ Jesus. So as we come to this text in Ruth 4, we will see we do have reason to rejoice. And I thought it's appropriate this week of Thanksgiving to come to this text. Um, We'll be looking at three reasons to rejoice. And think about this during the Thanksgiving week and beyond. Uh, The first reason we'll we'll look at is that uh, we can rejoice for a Redeemer who perfectly redeems. We can also rejoice in the faithfulness of God. And we can rejoice finally that we have been given a great king. So first, let's see how we should rejoice for a redeemer who perfectly redeems. We'll see in this first part of uh, chapter 4 that there are two aspects to our redemption. And there are two aspects to Naomi and Ruth's redemption. First of all, redemption has to be done 
according to the law. And second, redemption has a price. A price must be paid for redemption. And here Boaz is working carefully to accomplish this redemption. And we should note first that he's very careful to redeem according to the law. Remember, there's a nearer redeemer, and because of this nearer redeemer, Boaz must first obtain the right to to redeem from him. Verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Notice how carefully Boaz proceeds here. Boaz goes out in the morning and sits at the gate of the city, which is kind of like the courtrooms we have today. It's where all the legal proceedings were taken care of. He sits down. He gathers ten witnesses as he sees, uh, he calls them friend. As he sees him coming by, the nearer redeemer. He says, sit down. And they sat down. And he's making sure everything's done so that this will be a legitimate and a witnessed redemption that he's going to perform for uh, Naomi and Ruth. And you you see, I, I should explain, Boaz, I don't know if you remember from last time, but for Boaz, there's a deeper re- reason for redeeming Naomi and Ruth than just supporting them, than just providing food and a home. And that is to raise up the name of the dead in his inheritance. Um, and that's why he's so very careful to work perfectly according to the law. So Boaz sits down, the near redeemer comes at just the right time. It reminds us of chapter 2 when it says, Behold, Boaz came to the field where Ruth was gleaning. And we saw there that was not by accident. So Boaz calls out to him and he says something interesting. We should note this about the name. In the ESV here it says, Friend. Names him Friend. Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Well, in the Hebrew it's actually Poloni Almoni. It's kind of our, our, it's equivalent to saying such and such, such and such, such and such a place. It's a way of naming something where the name of it doesn't matter. And uh, let's just call him Mr. So-and-so. I like that much better than friend because it's more accurate. Uh, This guy's name is Mr. So-and-so. And And the point being made here in the book by the author is, is that his name is not important. If you look through, you'll note all the major players in the chapter are named, even Orpah. Orpah, who had abandoned Naomi to go back to her family and her gods in Moab. Um, And the point being here is that this guy's name is not important. This guy is seen throughout throughout his actions here in the first part of this chapter as an unworthy redeemer. It contrasts with Boaz. Boaz, because of his work of redemption, he's made famous in Bethlehem. We even see him showing up in uh, Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy. Um, But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's... Let's go on to verse 3 here. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. After carefully carefully gathering the witnesses, Boaz presents the situation to Mr. So-and-so. He explains, Naomi's selling her land. He says, uh, if you'd like to buy this land, redeem it. If you don't want to buy it, I'll redeem it. And of course, 
Mr. So-and-so says, yeah. So, Mr. So-and-so says, yeah, of course I'll redeem it. Who wouldn't take this opportunity? Uh, this is like free land, practically, to add to his portfolio of income. If you think about it, he probably was expecting uh, something a little different than what Boaz now says is going to happen. Verse 5, then Boaz said, surprise, the day you redeem, you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. I actually like uh, some of the translations say to raise up the name of the dead in his inheritance. I think that's a better translation for what we're seeing here. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, we see here how the prospect of self-gain is really driving Mr. So-and-so. And we see that as Boaz comes in with a knockout punch, and he quickly changes his mind when he mentions, Ruth is the one you'll marry. This would actually cost him way more than it would gain him. At first, he probably thought Naomi would be the one he would have to marry, if anyone. Naomi was beyond childbearing years. We saw that earlier. One more mouth to feed in terms of, in comparison to the land and the benefit he would get from that land, that's nothing. It would have been a great deal. Any one of us probably would have taken that deal. Um, But when Ruth is introduced, there's a problem. Aside from the fact that she's a Moabite, which isn't, isn't a good reputation, but we know she's been seen as a worthy woman now, so that may have changed. But besides that, if she would have had a child, a male heir, the land that this Redeemer would have paid the cost for would have reverted to that male child when he came of age. This potential loss of income, of food, or whatever, ruined the transaction for Mr. So-and-so. He didn't really care about raising up the name of the dead Elimelech in the land, like Boaz did. So this cost was just too much for him, and he gave it up. And so we see, though, Boaz gladly bears the cost that the other redeemer could not. So first of all, Boaz has redeemed carefully according to the law. Now, Boaz bears the cost that the other redeemer couldn't. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming the, the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses today. We can see, consider Boaz's actions here in light of the nearer Redeemer's failure to redeem. Boaz would have faced the same costs as Mr. So-and-so, but he's willing to pay that price. You see, Boaz, he's operating under a different principle than Mr. So-and-so. He's not concerned with his own welfare as much as he's concerned with someone else's. He's looking forward to something that the uh, laws of redemption pointed to, which is a resurrection, raising up the name of Elimelech in the land. 
And in this, he's, he's upholding. Remember, earlier we saw him as he gave an abundance of grain to Ruth and Naomi. He's not just operating according to the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. So Boaz here exhibits something for us. He could have rebuffed Ruth in chapter 3 and said, no, 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 no. This is not appropriate. I'm not a near redeemer. He would have no obligation to redeem Ruth. But instead, he works here to raise up the name of the dead Elimelech, to raise it up again, that he might again live before the face of God in the land, that he might live upon his inheritance in his offspring. And we see here that those laws of redemption pointed to something. It pointed to a time when no one would perish from before the face of God. It pointed to a resurrection life in the new creation. This is the life that you and I look to also. This is the destination we hope for and we can rejoice in. Boaz is gladly and carefully pursuing this redemption at his own cost for the sake of Elimelech, who has died. And here Ruth and Naomi find redemption in the only one who is willing and able to bear the cost and who did so according to the law. They find redemption in Boaz, who, as we've seen earlier, displays us to us the character of his God. And ultimately, where do we see this character displayed? But in God's Son, who perfectly redeems his people. So Boaz's work here shows us there are two aspects to our redemption, law-keeping and payment. You and I, in Adam, are unable to keep God's law and disqualified from keeping it because we're born in Adam anyway, as Romans 5 explains. We need someone who will keep the law for us and never sin. One born of a woman and one not born in Adam. But we also need someone who can pay the price for our redemption. This price is a price of blood. This price is a price that can bear the everlasting punishment of God for sin. And we can see that Jesus accomplished this redemption and paid this price and kept the law for us and died on the cross to redeem. And this is the one the entire Old Testament points forward to. Beginning in Genesis 3.15, if you look back, you'll see a seed promised to a woman that would crumb and crush the head of the serpent. Here in Ruth, we're seeing a small part of how God is working to bring this son into history. And as we see this, we see God is faithful and we can rejoice in the faithfulness of our God. We can rejoice for a perfect redeemer and we can rejoice in the faithfulness of our God. And we consider here the joy we see in the men and the women who give a blessing after, before and after the birth of this son. So starting in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. This blessing, pronounced by the men, is a blessing of a new dynasty that would come from Boaz. First of all, they place Ruth, the Moabite, alongside of Rachel and Leah, the matriarchs of Israel. Uh, That's pretty incredible that that would be done. 
Uh, and second of all, they call for Boaz to be the father of a strong, kingly, and fruitful line by referring to Perez, who came from Judah through Tamar. Remember, Judah was the tribe through whom a king would come, as Jacob prophesied over them. These men are giving a blessing that through the offspring of the woman, Ruth, and through Ruth would come blessing by that offspring. The promised seed of Genesis 3.15 is a promise we see popping up throughout the Old Testament, by the way. Think of this. Remember Abraham and Sarah promised an offspring? Remember uh, Samson's parents were promised an offspring. Remember Hannah prayed for an offspring and received one. And David also was promised an offspring. The children of promise who were born to these parents all pointed forward to the one who the law pointed to, that the laws of redemption hoped for. They're kind of like those breaks we'll take along the way in Washington, small stops that are stops wherein we rejoice because we're looking forward to reaching a better destination. These people were being reminded of a hope that was to come, and they rejoiced because of it. Remember what Jesus said about Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's from John 8. As these Old Testament saints sojourned in this cursed world, they looked to a promise of a new creation where sorrow and death would be no more. And guess what? So do we. Remember, uh, we, like Elimelech, are completely unable to save ourselves, completely dead in sin. We see this in uh, Ephesians 2, for example. Our nearer redeemer, Adam, failed to obey God, and because of that was cursed with death, along with all of his children. But Jesus has come and rescued us from that death. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll go ahead and read that. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 26. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. That's you and I. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And now we can understand the rejoicing of the women as Yahweh visits Ruth and gives her conception. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. As we see this verse, we can note this is only the second time that Yahweh is spoken of as acting directly. In the first time, the first time we see that is in chapter 1. Remember, he visits his people to give them bread. This time, though, instead of bread, he visits his people and gives an offspring. Yahweh has reversed the famine, first of all, and brought food to his people. But now he's reversed a famine of childlessness by bringing conception to Ruth. Now, if we look in chapter 1, we'll see. She was in uh, Moab for 10 years, married, with no children. So essentially, she's been barren for those 10 years. And here we see immediately she becomes pregnant 
She's been given offspring by the work of God. So not only is the seed of the woman, who ultimately we see as Jesus, as Ruth ends up in the line of Jesus, not only is this one going to come through one who's been buried barren for 10 years, but this seed comes through a cursed people, especially cursed people, the Moabites. Doesn't God work to redeem in the most extraordinary ways? I think it's pretty amazing that he brings this promised offspring through a Moabite, which demonstrates his grace extends even to the most cursed of people who come to him by faith. It's not based on ethnicity, not based on, based on worthiness. And he also shows that he alone gives grace to his people. He alone brings a son to Ruth and Naomi who can redeem them. All of this is designed to show us that what he does is to cause us to rejoice in his power and his grace and his mercy so that he will receive all the glory for it. So we see here in Ruth, he works to raise up Yahweh through Boaz works to raise up the name of a man who is completely dead and unable to save himself. And I mentioned Ephesians 2. We see God, God works in this way to bring glory to himself in Ephesians 2. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins at first. And then I think it's verse 5. But God, but God in his mercy has raised us up together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And Paul tells us in Ephesians, everything he's doing in our redemption is to the praise of his glorious grace. So Yahweh here is finally praised for his grace. He's finally vindicated publicly in front of the same women that Naomi had accused him of coming out against her in front of. Verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and put him in her lap and became his nurse. These women who were witnesses of Naomi's accusations against Yahweh as they greeted her when she returned from Moab in chapter 1, verse 19. Now greet the birth of Obed with a blessing to Yahweh for his loving kindness and providing Naomi a redeemer. Several things have been reversed here from what we saw in chapter 1. Remember that Naomi had lost her sons and her husband, and here Ruth is called better than seven sons, which is incredible. And in Jewish thought, the number seven is completeness. It has to do with creation days, right? And seven sons, wow, what a family. What a perfect family. But Ruth is better than this. She's faithful to Naomi. And her faithfulness results not only in her giving birth to a son, but that she gives this son to Naomi. Naomi's the one who receives a son. Yahweh has reversed the loss of Naomi's sons by giving her Ruth. <clears throat> But also, remember that Naomi's husband, his name now will be raised up again in the land. The inheritance that he left to go to Moab to find food is going to be restored to him in his offspring. That name will live before the face of God again in the land. This was a big deal to Israelites, that a name not be blotted out from before God in the land. 
So Yahweh reverses Naomi's charges against him. And this is kind of the, I think it's the best part of the whole book where Yahweh is publicly vindicated in his loving kindness after Naomi has accused him so bitterly. He's been working all along to bring her back to himself. This woman who, uh, who had gone to Moab with her husband and sons, who sought to return her daughters back to Moab because she had no hope for redemption, did she? Remember, she said, I cannot bear sons. You may as well go back home. There's no hope for me to raise up a son for you to marry. In self-reliance, she thought she could do it. Therefore, because she was barren, it could not be done. But Yahweh now shows her she was completely wrong. Remember her saying, Yahweh's hand has come out against me. He's testified against me. Yahweh has brought me back empty when I went away full. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. She changed her name to Mara, which means bitter. Yahweh now is returning to her fullness. And it's all by grace that she might praise him once again. So through this son that fills Naomi's lap now, after she's claimed to be empty, Yahweh brings a great king. And this is our third point. As we see the name David appear at the end of this book, we should also rejoice that we've been given a great king. And the women of the neighborhood, in verse 17, gave him a, great, gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So first of all, the name of the boy here, Obed, it means servant. And the women name him. The women here see him as a servant to Naomi who will nourish her, care for her, and return life to her. But was the greatest part of this that Naomi received someone who can care for her, who can feed her in her old age? No. The cool thing about Ruth is Yahweh works with, Mo, with Naomi and shows us his grace there. But also he's working with Israel. He brings someone greater to Israel in David. Remember that blessing of the elders. May Yahweh make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give to you by this young woman. The blessing of the elders is fulfilled in the great dynasty of David, who we see now is the grandson of Obed. In the book of Ruth, Yahweh, we see, has been working to give his people a king in order to bring them out of their misery and to give them rest. If you remember way back in chapter one, we talked about when this book was written. What, what time period was this? It was the time of the judges. Not a good time in Israel. There was no king in Israel, and so every man did what was right in his own eyes. This time of judges was to show Israel their need for a king. They needed someone who could bring them to a state of rest. And this book of Ruth shows us how he brought that king to Israel by bringing through Ruth, through Obed, David, the king. Obed, the servant, who returns life to Naomi, also is the one through whom God works to give his people a great king who would bring them rest 
That's in David. But remember that David is a man, was a man. Even the rest that the people find as David and Solomon, those great kings of Israel, come in to the rule to rule Israel. They give their people rest, don't they? But that rest comes to a bitter end. As the kingdom splits, the people go into exile. But that's not the end of David's line. And we see in the Old Testament, that line's preserved. All the way up to a baby born in Bethlehem. Jesus is born, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the servant's son, who is the king of all creation. It's in in him that we can rejoice forever. We can rejoice. We have a king who brings us rest. And so we've seen that through Boaz, God brings a king, a king who redeems his people from their sin and misery by his perfect keeping of the law and by his paying the price of blood that they could be redeemed. Jesus gives his people rest in a kingdom that will never fade away, that will never pass away, that we will never perish from before the face of God as we glorify him and enjoy him forever. So as we sojourn here on earth, through those trials we go through, through the misery we experience here, we can look for it with, with joy to our destination. Kind of like that car ride. It's a pitiful example, but that car ride, we're looking forward to getting home. That's the only reason we're going to drive 22 hours with kids. We too, like the men and women in Bethlehem, can break out in rejoicing for God's great work of salvation. So let us rejoice for his grace that he's given us the most unworthy and undeserving people in the world, his son. Jesus, who gave up everything for our sake, redeemed us from the curse of the law of sin and death. Our father is faithful who brought his son to us through Ruth, through Boaz, through Obed, through David. He brought him into the world after so many years of promise, faithfully. And Jesus, that son, became a great king, a great king that will give us rest so our names will never be be destroyed from before the face of God. We will live forever in the light of God's face. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come to this season of Thanksgiving, let us look forward to our eternal home. Rejoice that God has redeemed us through his servant son.